Welcome back to Divided States of Women. I'm Liz Plank. I'm Heatha Herzog. Heatha, I want to start off the show with a confession. I know it's not summer, and I'm probably not going to be wearing a bathing suit anytime soon, but I still want my body to be bikini ready. Why? Why do you hate yourself? Why do we beat ourselves up just because we want to look good for ourselves? Really, Heatha? Okay, you would... You would live on a deserted island, and, and even if you were alone, you would still want to look good for, for you, for yourself. You would still be doing Soul Cycle. Okay, so first of all, <laughs> if we were on an island, we would be eating berries Ew, and yeah. basically twigs. So I wouldn't have to Maybe. really watch what I was eating. Right. And we'd be scrounging a lot and exercising a ton. So actually, I'd be psyched about that. But what if there were donuts, unlimited donut tree on the island? Would you still not eat the donuts so that you would feel good and healthy for yourself? <laughs> well, because this is what I'm testing, which I say I do what you just said all the time. I I hear myself say that I'm doing things for myself, that I, you know, work out because I want to feel good about my body, that I, you know, put on makeup because it makes me feel better. Sure. But then I know that I'm kind of lying to myself. Like, if no one was going to see me that day, I probably wouldn't put on makeup. I probably, if no one would ever Hold see me. Like, you look amazing, though, without makeup. I mean, you're not even wearing makeup right now, and you look like a supermodel. I am wearing makeup. Okay, but the point is, you know, are we really doing all of these things? Are we dieting for ourselves? Are we dieting for other people because of the pressures of society? Are we doing all these things because we've been taught to care about them? Okay, so I have an interesting story for you. I was talking with Seth the other day. Seth is my husband. And I said to him, babe, what if I just for a year didn't wax my upper lip, did not shave my armpits, did not shave my legs, did not wax downstairs, just let my hair go gray because at 25 I went completely gray. So Mm. I would be like a white head of hair, did not work out, gain the extra 15, 20 pounds or however, however much I would gain. I said, what would you do? And he said, divorce. And I think he was kidding. I hope that he was kidding. He's a comedian, right? He is a comedian. So, ha, that's really funny. But I think there's a little bit of truth to that. Mm. Well, this is, you know, is an interesting story because I think it speaks to the differences and the expectations that we have about men and women Mm -hmm. in society. So I hate myself for wanting to be bikini ready and to wanting to look good in a bathing suit. But I also am aware that that is a message that's been instilled in me from a very, very young age. And despite there being a lot of pressure on men to lurk a certain way as well. And especially, I think, in recent years with like gyms and athletic, you know, shakes and all that stuff, the pressure is different because men's value is not tied to their appearance as much as as it is for women. And that's why you don't see as many overweight women on television as overweight men. Like there's a show on Vice. There's a show on Vice that's all about this guy who's overweight and Totally loving it, not, you know, unapologetic about it. And he goes to restaurants and he just like stuffs his face and eats these like amazing meals and amazing sandwiches. How is this a TV show? And he's wearing, he has this like (laughs) all of this like this huge beard and he's just like doesn't give a fuck. And every time I see a promotion for that show, I imagine what if this was a woman? 
who didn't care that she was overweight, who didn't, you know, groom herself in a way to make herself presentable or feminized for society. And she stuffed her face and was like, I don't care. This is amazing. I just don't think that we're there yet. I think we're getting there. I think Amy Schumer is sort of like the poster child for body acceptance and like this is, you know, who I am and I don't give an F about what I'm doing. But Amy Schumer is a size six or eight. Amy Schumer is not overweight, and she has become the poster child for accepting your body. Even And right. so this is where I actually want to pull in a little bit of data that I find fascinating around the discrimination against fat people. And there is discrimination against men and women. They are perceived as being less hireable. But there's a difference in the way that that discrimination takes place, and it is worse for women. And what's really interesting is that they do it by BMI. So your BMI is your body mass index. I think a healthy BMI is from 18.5 to like 26 or 25. Um, And over that, you start being overweight. But like women aren't even in the overweight range, and people start seeing them as less, less hireable than men who are in the overweight range. Okay, so... Are we a society that like wants to stay thin and fit? And is that does that give us value in the workplace and going out into the world? Probably. But that's what happens in the world. Mm. But also there's the health issue, too, Liz. I yeah. mean, we have to think about that. Yeah. It's a thin line. It's a fine line of saying, you know what? I want to be body positive and accept who I am and you are as a bigger, thicker person. But then when, as a society, do we say, mm-hmm. yo, this is a health risk. Mm-hmm. And then it goes into, you know, we're, you know, political things too. Mm-hmm. Not to go on a political tangent, but when you start having a, lots of people that are obese, guess who ends up paying for them? You know, my insurance premiums are gonna go up even though I'm at Physique 57 at <laughs> 7.30 in the morning to be fit. But who has the money to go to Physique 57 at 7.30 in the morning to afford a $40 Pilates class how many times a week and and the childcare while you're at the Pilates class? Like it, There's just like an insane amount of money that you need in order to work out. And the, the people who can go to these classes have a lot of disposable income. I agree with you on some aspect, but I saw this firsthand. So, you know, my father has had recently passed away and he had this home health aid. This was such an eye opener for me because here I am, you know, to your point in my sort of gilded world of Manhattan. You know, I spend, like you said, Mm -hmm. tons of money on on fitness and, and, you know, the best foods and Whole Foods is down the street from my house. And like it could not be better. I'm very, very, very thankful. But, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here talking to this woman. She was 22 years old, was part of the foster care system. This was sort of her way out. She was going to community college. Her life goal was to be an OBGYN, a mm-hmm. doctor. But she was also taking care of my father, going to school, and like living in my dad's house while she was doing all this. You know, she's bigger. She's young. She's, you know, dark-skinned. Let me tell you something. The biggest eye-opener was going out to dinner with her in North Carolina mm-hmm. because— All of a sudden, you know, two women of color going out there, I realized how much I fall back on my privilege currency, you know? So we go in and, you know, we're having sort of a life conversation. Like, what's going to happen now? How are you going to, what are you going to do? How are you going to help yourself? You know, she wants to lose weight. And here's the thing that I realized about her. It wasn't a money issue. 
But a lot of people who are in this situation don't have the financial education to understand how to spend their money. So here she is. She's spending $600 on her cell phone bill. But she also has a car payment that she has to have or she has to make. She wants to lose weight. Now, you're right. We spend a lot of money on fitness, but you can also go running. I mean, when I didn't have any money in the city, I would go running and, you know, take yoga for the people, you know, and that's donation based. And there's ways to kind of go ahead and do that. Right. So that's my point there. But in terms of well eating, I think people don't understand you don't necessarily have to go to McDonald's. McDonald's is very expensive, by the way. Like when you start going there a lot, you're spending $10, you know, $15 a day, sometimes 20 if you're getting three meals a day there. It's a lot. Mm -hmm. But people don't understand how to allocate their funds. So I think a lot of it, too, is financial education. I guess the point of my diatribe here is people don't want to necessarily be unhealthy. They want to eat well and they want to exercise. They want to have the best life. Mm -hmm. They don't understand how to use their means in order to get it. Right. So, yeah, you bring up so many interesting sort of policy issues and, and factors that go into this. But one thing that I thought was really interesting in your story is that you said, I came in with my privilege. And you you were like, describe the way that you dress. But do you mean thin privilege? Yes, I think there is a lot of privilege. I mean, I also am a woman of color. So that has, you know, I have that sort of going against me. Mm. But to your point, Liz, I think the thin privilege, the education privilege, the second you see me, you automatically get a very distinct picture of socioeconomic background right. in five seconds. Right. And I think that the privilege that you talk about, like, mm. I walk into a room with that. And right. I think a lot of people do. Actually, as I you know mentioned before, these stereotypes that we carry about overweight people, they have really economic implications for both women and men who are overweight. But it disproportionately affects women because we judge women more harshly for being overweight than we do men. And actually, they start being discriminated against for being overweight before they're even overweight. I actually interviewed a really smart expert on this topic. She's uh, the vice president of workplace justice at the National Women's Law Center, Emily Martin. Explain this to me, because I, I feel like I must be getting something wrong. As the law currently states, it would be totally legal for your manager to come in one day and say, I'm firing you because you're fat. Maybe. So there are a couple places in the country where there's an explicit protection against workplace discrimination based on personal appearance or based on weight. So the state of Michigan, several cities around the country, Washington, San Francisco, a few others. Most places in the U.S. there isn't any explicit protection, but if your employer really doesn't like fat women but doesn't care about fat men, that could be sex discrimination under federal law and under state law. There are also situations where it might be disability discrimination. So if, um, if you're overweight because of some underlying physiological problem like a thyroid disorder or diabetes, that could be an ADA issue for the employer to say, I'm firing you because of your weight. And there have been some cases, the, under the previous administration, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission took the position, and we'll see if it continues to, that morbid obesity, so severe obesity, is itself a disability and thus covered under the ADA. 
Um, so there are situations where there may be legal protections, but it's a little more complicated than a strict rule saying you can't do that. Right. And But the ADA uh, sort of recourse or protections are for people who are obese or morbidly obese. But the data shows that you don't even need to be overweight to be discriminated against for being overweight if, if you are a woman. That's right. Um, Yes, the data is pretty disturbing that it doesn't take being very overweight, especially if you were thin before, oddly. It seems like uh, people really resent it if you used to be thin and then gain weight. Um, and as you say, especially if you're a woman, uh, the data is pretty strong that employers and others, but employers importantly, have a lot of negative stereotypes about you. So you're right that that space in between being um, super skinny and morbidly obese is definitely a place where the legal protections are a little less clear. But again, let's go back to the fact that employers are especially likely to um, penalize women who are overweight. That suggests sex discrimination, which is definitely illegal. Right. Now, the, quest, the problem is, you know, having enough information about what's going on to know that that's happening. Right. Having the male comparator who's the same as you and the same weight who isn't experiencing right. it, it, it can be hard to it's prove like impossible. and demonstrate. Literally, like, you know, unless you have a yeah. twin there, <laughs> there have been cases where the employer actually had a policy. So okay. um, airlines for flight attendants had um, policies a decade or couple decades back that had weight limits for men and for women and um, some of the airlines lost when they were sued for sex discrimination because the weight limits for men were based on what's a healthy weight for a large frame individual while the weight limits for women were based on what's a healthy weight for a medium frame individual okay. so there was some real difference in treatment um, so if you have a policy about weight um, obviously that helps, but most employers these days are probably savvy enough, I hope, not to say women can weigh this much, men can weigh right. this more generous amount. And I, I want to talk about men. Uh, I, I do want to touch on something that, you know, in, in the case of the airlines that you talked about, mm -hmm. they accepted a certain level for men, but then uh, yeah. that, that was large, and then, but it need to be medium for women. Why is that? Why do we need women to? Why don't we have the same weights if we're going to discriminate against weight, <laughs> which not? is not Everybody a good thing? Why not? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. And I have to assume that it's because there is a lot of pressure, you know, throughout life, but in the workplace too, for women to conform to gender stereotypes, including the stereotype of what is attractive, what is ideal femininity. And there are real penalties that women face when they deviate from those stereotypes. And sometimes it well may be unconscious that employers, that supervisors, that bosses are, um, are penalizing individuals because they don't find them to be nice enough, pretty enough, accommodating enough. Um, but the data from a variety of different sorts of cases is pretty clear that there is a price to be paid if um, you aren't conforming to stereotypes of femininity and pronounced ways, and that definitely goes to attractiveness, among mm -hmm. many other things. So because we put a higher premium or a bigger value on, on what women look like, more than what men look like, that's why there's a bigger cost yeah. to women. I mean, again, maybe it's changing, and it's sort of sad movement toward equality where we're putting more of a premium on what men look like, too. But certainly, I think it would be hard to argue that it's not still the case mm -hmm. that um, appearance is 
a bigger deal in the culture for women than for men, and men are given more leeway to not look attractive all the time than women are. Nishat, where do I keep my shoes? In the oven, right? Yeah. It's sad. It's, it's I also keep terrible. pants in my freezer because it, you don't have to wash them. It's, it's, so, you'll Google it. So you're doing a lot of cooking at I, home then. I'm doing a lot of cooking. <laughs> um, but one thing actually that's really helped me is Sunbasket. Um, they you know send food to your apartment. You can choose paleo, lean and clean, gluten-free, vegetarian. And it's all created by a chef uh, who's award-winning and approved by nutritionists. Um, Their executive chef is actually used to be the chef de cuisine at the Slanted Door in San Francisco. Ooh, which I've heard is, about that place. Oh, it's amazing. It was one of the first Vietnamese fusion restaurants yum, yum. Um, innovated there and now she's innovating at Sunbasket with these organic and sustainable ingredients in your meal kit that are pre-measured and ready to go. I love that. Pre-measured and ready to go. I wish everything was that way. Um, with ba- <laughs> Sunbasket, you can prepare your meals in under 30 minutes and they're always super delicious. You can go to sunbasket.com slash divided today to get $35 off your first order. Sunbasket actually makes Liz move the shoes out of her oven. Yeah. Yes, momentarily. Then they go back in there because I don't have space. Whether or not there are accessories occupying your stove and (laughs) oven, you should try Sunbasket yourself and see how it makes your life easier. Go to sunbasket.com slash divided today to get $35 off your first order. That is no small thing. 35 bucks off sunbasket.com slash divided. Hi there, this is Sarah Cliff from Vox. Once you're done listening to The Divided States of Women, I have another podcast suggestion for you. It's called The Impact, and every week we have stories about real people. I got pregnant two months after I graduated high school. It was not planned. (laughs) We look at the policies that shape those people's lives. Too often here in D.C., we stop talking about laws after they pass. But on The Impact, we will follow those policies out into the real world where all of us live. It's just fantastic. It's just great. Subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or whatever podcast app you like the most. So what does the data show in terms of the economic cost of weight discrimination for women? Well, there's some really interesting and disturbing studies out there that show that there's a real salary gap for women who are overweight, and it gets bigger as um, women's weight goes up. Um, but that really makes a difference in you know the, the paychecks of women and the families that women support, right? Because it's not just women that are impacted when women are paid less. It's their kids and their husbands and all the people who are depending on them. Um, so Another thing that the data suggests is that people who um, feel that they've been discriminated against because of their weight are likely to experience a variety of sort of health impacts, that feeling that you have experienced that kind of discrimination means that you're more likely than somebody of the same weight who doesn't feel that way to have um, poor health, depression and anxiety, and even higher levels of mortality. Um, So that has an economic impact too. If you're feeling the stress of discrimination, that um, can mean that 
you're less able to work or that you have bigger medical bills or that um, your life is impacted in all sorts of ways. And when you were talking about the stereotypes that we associate with uh, overweightness, mm -hmm. um, what are the stereotypes that, that, what do employers think, yeah. even subconsciously maybe, about a person who's overweight and especially a, wo a woman who's overweight? Yeah, I think that the stereotypes seem to be that um, overweight people are are lazy, or that they aren't as bright, or that they don't have um, real willpower. So there's sort of a moral panic about weight mm. in this country. I don't know that it's new, but I also don't think it's going away even as, um, even as average weights increase, it may in some right. ways be getting worse. The notion that um, if you're overweight, it's because of some deep personal failing. And so again, sometimes people have this thought process consciously. Sometimes it's sort of a little more of the lizard brain and it's not quite, you're not quite sure why you're having a negative reaction to the person in front of you. But that set of thoughts about this person just isn't, isn't willing to work hard is a set of thoughts which is really damaging yeah. if you're looking for a job. And again, it seems like women are more likely to have that set of stereotypes activated when they're dealing with an employer than men are. Right. And it's so interesting because if we were, I, I think a lot of people don't say, well, she's overweight, so I won't hire her. Um, but even having that, associating those, those two things together, if you were to say, I'm not hiring you, you because you're black, you're probably lazy. Like, it, it's just insane to me that right. weight is, um, in a way, it's, it's sort of accepted as the sort of yeah. as acceptable discrimination. I think that's right. I mean, you wouldn't say it to a person's face probably, but yeah, I think it's much more acceptable for people to say, you know, if you don't want to be overweight, you can fix it. That's up to you. It's completely within your power and we can draw conclusions that you don't really care given right. that you're overweight. I do think that, yes, there are plenty of places where people feel comfortable saying that. Right. And therefore you shouldn't be hired in, a, you know, in, in a position where you're front facing the public right. because you're not, you know. And it demonstrates that you don't have the willpower, you don't have the commitment, right. you don't have the follow through, that there are lots of reasons that we can assume that you're not going to be good at your job. Right. What recourse do people have mm -hmm. if they are not protected by the law? Mm -hmm. What can they do if they feel like they are being discriminated against because mm -hmm. of their weight? Is there anything they can do? Well, again, there may are circumstances where they may mm -hmm. be protected by the law. Mm -hmm. So it depends on what has actually happened to you. And you know, it's no matter what sort of discrimination you're challenging, mm -hmm. there's often a real information disparity between the employer and the person who is suspecting that they may be experiencing discrimination. So, for example, if you're not hired, it's really hard to know right. why you're not hired. You don't usually have the perfect comparator. You know your friend was equally qualified and he went in and he was skinny and got the job. Or what. Right. You just don't know. Right. Um, and certainly that is the case here, just as it is the case in lots of situations. But it's also the case that given there's a little less of a taboo on saying this out loud, that there certainly could be situations where um, an employer says to a woman, you know, this is unacceptable, the way you look is sending the wrong message about the business, where she knows that there is a guy across the way who looks the same way and is allowed to do the job. And in that situation, there is a claim. There is an ability to, you, you should seek legal help because there is sex discrimination going on that could really be challenged. and. 
I think often there is sex discrimination that is informing attitudes about um, about weight because um, women are really called upon more than men to be skinny all the time. Um, if you don't have a legal claim, you know, there certainly is also power in employees coming together. So obviously, if you have a union, that can be a really powerful thing for the union to think about this as um, a place to bargain for protections and that's great. Most people don't have a union these days, but even in the absence of a union, if you have some other coworkers who agree that this is happening, that this is wrong, you do have some legal protections to come together and talk to your employer, whether you do it through a union or not, to say, we really feel like there's a problem here. Can we explore right. a way to fix it? So Heath, at this interview with Emily Martin, did it spark anything for you? I have a confession to make to you. Okay, here's my confession. Oh my right? gosh, I'm excited. We were talking about privilege earlier. What if I told you I work out and I maintain because I like the privilege? I like the fact mm -hmm. that I am able to walk into a room and that five-second assessment that people have, it opens doors for me. They don't see color, Liz. They don't see this daughter of an immigrant. They don't see any of that. They just see a capable, thin, pretty, socioeconomic, on the higher level person, you know. Um, she probably, she's educated, she does well in life. Mm -hmm. She, you know, you know, all of that that comes with that, with that privilege. What if I told you that that's part of the reason why I maintain and, and work out and make sure that like, this always looks on fleek? Right. So do you think your thin privilege helps you reduce the impact of racial discrimination against yeah. you? A, a thousand percent. I work in fashion and retail, right. so I kind of there's an element of, um, you know, it's kind of what I do. So it's sort of in my existence. But what if I worked in let's find something stereotypical Indian like I.T., <laughs> You know, like and didn't care about fashion, just sort of put my hair back up and, you know, and didn't wear any makeup. I think there's an element of I would become invisible. Wow. Yeah. And I think a lot. I don't think I'm alone in that. I think a lot of people of color use the thin privilege, the education privilege, the, um, you know, the five second socioeconomic privilege to kind of move us away from that potential discrimination. I am so thrilled, excited, honored, privileged to be joined by Kara Connor, who is one of my favorite humans Hello. on this planet Earth. She's the head of new markets at BuzzFeed NBD, and she also founded the blog Graves Are For Dead People. I did. I am a huge fan of your blog and your life and uh, your storytelling when it comes to illness, body image, and like all of the sort of entanglements that come with it. And I'm so happy you're here to join us to talk about it. 
I'm so glad to be here. I think this is the conversation I've been wanting to have for three years. So oh thank you God. for having it with me. I'm excited. Should we open up our seltzers? I think we should. Yeah. You know, this is a this is a noise that has a lot of significance to me in my life. Oh, that's such a beautiful sound. I think it's my favorite sound. It's the sound of coming home. It's that's what it is. Cheers. Cheers. So if you, you, you can't tell, but we're drinking seltzer. Mm. And it's great. Crisp and delicious. It's, it's, uh, it's pamplemousse flavor. <laughs> Um, yeah, I just needed to do that ritual before we kicked off. No, I, th- I think it, it, it would be sense. wrong not to. It would. We I can't don't have a know. conversation without it. Yeah, to it, be perfectly it, honest, it would be str- really strange for me. So, um, tell us about sort of your story and why you started your blog. So, you know, I feel the past the past couple of years has been this interesting narrative in my life where I have all of the normal you know, trappings of here's who I am and here's what I do. And then I have these autoimmune diseases that sort of take over a lot of other space in my life. And it was three years ago that I got my first one. Mm. Um, it's like getting tattoos. You get one and then you get another. Oh, exciting. Uh, and I got Graves' disease. And at the time, I hadn't heard of it. I didn't know anybody else who had it. It's a thyroid disorder. And yeah. it's um, when your body makes too much thyroid hi- hormone. So I was very hyper and very excited. Um, and, you know, I started treatment and I, being sort of a kind of intense analytical person, I just wanted to read as much about it as I could. And there wasn't a lot of good information, both about autoimmune disease and then how to live with it. And what I felt was really missing was a sense of humor. And I yeah. think, you know, the internet is a, is a tricky place to go if you want to yeah. look up um, something like chronic illness because you can get a lot of opinions. <laughs> and, and all of them all are of them, totally normal. Absolutely. Totally. Hyperbole. It's very fact-based. They're heavily rooted in science. Um, and always a great place to go at like three in the morning. Yeah. And so, you know, like I'm like, okay, well, I, if I can just like solve this and figure out what's wrong with me yeah. right now and if I just Google the right combination of words, <laughs> voila! Um, and so I... Uh, I started a blog because, you know, everything that I could find, like, and obviously I'm exaggerating a little bit, but like everything was written in italics. You know, oh, like the idea right. of like autoimmune disease disproportionately affects women. And I felt like it took, especially thyroid disease, it had this like, you know, like the the pink websites and the woman sort of staring like blandly off into the distance. Right. Like I healed myself and, and you can too. And like there wasn't anything about like the real practical day-to-day living of like this is what it means to have this condition. This is what it means to live your life. Uh, these are the parts that are terrible. These are the parts that aren't so bad. And there just there was no middle ground. It was that or it was like medical textbooks, which are also very mm. useful. But I, I just wanted to read something that I was interested in right? and I couldn't find it. So I decided to write about it. Well, thank you. Uh, and I <laughs> love the humor in your blog. And even as a person who doesn't have Graves disease or has autoimmune disorders, like I enjoy your writing so much on the topic and you've helped so many people, right? You've received a lot of letters, even like from nurses and yeah, you know. it's been so wonderful. And I thought, you know, when I started it, I was like, well, it's cool because my mom is definitely going to read this. <laughs> you know, like maybe some, maybe somebody else will. You know, it's because my mom, because I make her. Um, but I've had so much support from you. And then, you know, especially uh, BuzzFeed has been really wonderful in letting me write a few essays on what it's like to have autoimmune disease. And actually last year, 
the sort of fun surprise is I got type 1 diabetes. And so that was really like extra fodder, if you mm. will, for writing. But it, it provided me a more, I think, holistic and comprehensive experience of what it's like to have these things. And especially after that, after that, I got, you know, I, I wasn't sure anyone was really going to read this essay, but I got tons of emails with people just the same story, like, thank you for writing this. No one took me seriously. I was sick for years. Or, you know, I'm 16 and I have four diseases and I'm doing this. But also, like, I'm a straight-A student. I'm so excited to go to college. And it's, like, stories that are both at once, like, very bittersweet and sad and kind of depressing and sort of their, like, chronic undertones. But also just stories about really normal people living normal lives. Right. And, you know, I remember when you told me about your diagnosis for diabetes, is it the type that you get from your behavior because oh, you yeah. are a slob or, oh, you know, yeah. can you tell us a little bit about, about that? Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so type one is, is also an autoimmune disease. And I, you know, it is one that I historically understood that you get diagnosed as a child and it's not so rare to get diagnosed as an adult, but it, it happens. And I just, it happened so fast, and all of a sudden, you know, I went from being someone who just, you know, just like a normal woman, like thinking about, you know, like with food and body issues and body image and that kind of stuff. And, you know, not only did the disease completely overhaul my life um, overnight, but then I had to revert to this stage, which felt like I was back in a place where I was very insecure about my body and how I looked and everything that put in my mouth had to be accounted for. And it felt very right. strange. And I've struggled with eating issues and body issues in the past. And so, you know, here I was, I was 32 years old and counting carbohydrates and having to like, you know, stick needles into my body according to what I was eating. I'm like, well, this disease is obviously my fault. I've done something right. to bring this on because what what else is the explanation? There's no there's no really good answer for what causes autoimmune disease. And so me being like a kind of highly sensitive person, I was like, well, this is my fault and mm -hmm. I'm a failure. My body has failed me and it's probably because of something that I've done. Right. And I, I felt a lot of shame and a lot of guilt. And as I've talked to more people that those are not isolated feelings that I had. I think a lot of a lot of women especially do. And there's no good like antidote for that. Why do you think women feel that more? Because we have more of a pressure to <laughs> eat salads and be happy. Uh, <laughs> how much time do we have? Um, I think, you know, it's it's really hard. It, it's like culturally, I think we're, we're in the middle of a lot of interesting moments in terms of how women are being perceived and how women are being are perceiving themselves. But we we have a lot of work to do. And I mean, still, I think, and maybe it, it's not just a woman thing. It's a human thing to feel insecure, insecure about our body. And when, you know, I'd never been through an experience where it was like my body was separate from who I am. Like, I, I thought we were kind of in this together. And then when mm -hmm. my body let me down, how dare you? Right. You know, what? <laughs> so what What am I if I don't have control over how I look and what I can accomplish? And it, so it felt like these small, quiet failures on a number of levels. And, you know, as, 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 a, as a relatively young woman of childbearing age, you know, like expect, you know, like wanting to look a certain way and kind of expected to look a certain way and just like the culture and media and movies and everything that surrounds us mm -hmm. telling us what looks good and what doesn't. It's just really easy to buy into. And when 
your body's sort of not producing on a, a fundamental level of what the body is like bare minimum supposed to be doing, I think it exacerbated all that. So, Liz, when I am not spending my time listening to podcasts, not just ours, other <laughs> podcasts, I am using the Texture app to read magazines on my phone. With the Texture app, you get unlimited access to over 200 premium magazines. It covers most major publications, The New Yorker, Bloomberg, Fast Company, The Atlantic, Vanity Fair. You get My Drift. The app has a highlight section that bubbles up top articles in various texture mags, and the magazines are digitally converted um, in a really beautiful and native way, so it makes the reading experience really seamless. So to start your texture free trial, go to texture.com slash divided. And if you choose to continue after your first month, our podcast listeners will get texture for only $9.99 a month. That's over 30% off their listed price. There are also great gift options available for the holidays. I love it. Go to texture.com slash divided to start your free trial today. That's texture.com slash divided. I remember when you first got, um, you know, diagnosed with thyroid um, problems, you told me the first question you asked was, is this going to make me fat? Yeah. And <laughs> I look, crazy. And I look back and I'm so embarrassed. Embarrassed by that, but also but like, don't be. I mean, it it, it was. It's, it's like this, you know. And I can I can understand now, like it was about the idea of not having control, right. as though like that was the worst possible thing that could ever happen to me. Because, because then what? Because then because then I don't look a certain way, and it's it's like I I needed people to know that this this was out of my control. But like, but but where did I even get those ideas from? I don't I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's a thing. Something I've 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 had a hard time with too with diabetes is, you know, I tell people I have type one diabetes and they say, "Oh, but you look fine." Like you don't like I think there's this thing like type one diabetics are supposed to look really skinny and I. So what does that mean? Right. So like because right. because I look because you're yeah. sick and like and because I'm because I'm not because I'm a healthy normal looking person. It's like. Uh, well, then it doesn't count. Mm. And it's like there's there's this idea like it has to y- – your body has to suffer another layer of something for it to really like be sort of accepted mm. by society. Right. Truthfully. Right. And the pressure to eat a certain way. Yeah. And that is also really difficult when you've dealt with body image, you know, issues and, and dealt with eating disorders too. Like it – makes you have much more scrutiny on on everything and and that you eat and everything that you do. Yeah, it's not a lot of fun. You know, I didn't I miss the days of being able to just like sit down and eat a meal without having to think about what you know, how much insulin I need to cover that like that's just like it's just not simple anymore. And I think when I'm feeling sad and when I'm feeling nostalgic for how it was before I, f- I first got this illness, um, it's that simplicity. I really, you know, I took it for granted. Mm-hmm. Totally took it for granted. And the, in the idea of of weight loss and being fat and being thin, it's like these things that we all think are in our control. 
Mm-hmm. You know, like right. these sort of like concept, like, oh, well, well, it's like if, if I have control over this, if I have control over my body, then like everything else will be fine. Okay. And I know after 33 years experience, not once has that ever been the case. <laughs> ever. <laughs> <laughs> right. Not everything magically. No. no. Yeah. It's funny how it doesn't matter what you look like in your life doesn't magically just fall into place. Right. It's, it's weird. Right. It's goes against all my theories. Right. So how do you combat all those things and be the powerful warrior princess that you are every day? <laughs> sometimes I do. Look, sometimes I feel like I've got it all locked down and I'm strolling down the street and I'm like, yes. Like every everything is aligned. My blood sugar is amazing. My thyroid is under. Like this is, I'm so great. Yeah. And then there it is. It's just a disaster. Mm. And I think what what I am sort of begrudgingly grateful for all of this is like this idea of there's no fixed point. Like it's going to come together. It's going to come undone. You know, my weight's going to change. It's going to change again. Like there's nothing's permanent. Mm. You know, I hope I don't have any other organs that shut down. But like we, none of us really have control. Right. You know, we never had it to begin with. And it's been a very humbling lesson. Mm. Um, so that that helps remembering that. What would be your advice to women who are dealing with graves or dealing with autoimmune uh, disorders in terms of having that ability to take the power back? Oh, man. You know, the one thing that I would love to see, and this is the writing that I want to do and the work that I want to take on, is what if we didn't have to conquer it? You know, what if we didn't have to beat it? What if, Because mm-hmm. it's it's chronic illness, and in some ways I think – body image and and issues that we have with eating and with the way that we perceive ourselves, these are chronic things. And it's not something that we like beat, lock down, and then get a move on forever. And I think that the, the sort of cultural expectation that that's what you do when you have an illness or when something doesn't feel right, that you have to beat it, yeah. that you have to triumph, that you have to like, you struggle, but you have to win. Mm. Um, you know, and in the last year, I've seen a lot of sort of I'm great. I'm very grateful that there are celebrities opening up about their sort of struggles with with certain illnesses. But again, it's framed as like, this is my struggle and this is how I won. Mm, to me, it doesn't feel like something right. that you win. To me, it feels like something that you kind of deal with yeah, every day, yeah, maybe and, forever. Right. And it's like this. And I think when I feel the worst is when I have the pressure to figure it all out. I'm like, okay, my doctor doesn't know how I got type one diabetes and we don't have a cure, but I'm going to find it on the internet. (laughs) You know, like that's like that. What is that? Like, where, where does that come from? You know, like a very, a very, you know, highly respectable team of endocrinologists can't solve this, but I can (laughs) with the power of Google. And if I just lose 20 pounds and then everything will be fine. And like, what? Like, let's get rid of that. Right. Like, let's yeah. let's change that conversation right. and right. expectation. It's hard enough having, you know, I think these these illnesses like women who already have these conditions, they're suffering enough. Mm. We don't have to we don't have to, like, conquer it. You know, it's not an Everest. Right. I think we should cheers one last time. I think we should. To um, with our Pumplamoose seltzers. Absolutely. This is delightful. Um, to to health, the health, to um, friendship and to seltzer. So just that's uh, that's the same. Getting along together. <laughs> Here we go. Um, I'm inviting every single person who's listening right now to go check out <laughs> the awesome blog, Graves Are for Dead People. 
Kara also has a ton of articles on BuzzFeed about going gluten-free and all of the (laughs) trials and tribulations of, you know, her existence uh, in in the world. And and she really does bring so much humor and, and warmth to her writing. And so I encourage everyone to go check her out. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank Kara. you so much for talking with me. Thank you for talking to us. It's been the best. It's the best. We're doing jazz fingers. I you know. can't tell. I'm so excited. Oh, my God. We're I holding need hands. to calm down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy. I am, too. Oh, my God. I wanted to have you on for so long. This is amazing. So we have one more story before we wrap up the show. It's from writer Porochista Kapoor. She's the author of the memoir, Sick. Like Kara, Porochista writes about her struggle with chronic illness, but her story is filtered through her experience as an immigrant and women of color and how the various communities she belongs to have reacted to her illness. I had grown up being fairly sickly. And I was a refugee. We were here in America on political asylum. And so I had all sorts of kind of mysterious ailments that seemed like they could be anxiety. I mean, I had what's what what, what one would now call panic disorder. So there was all sorts of stuff that was off with me. In my teenage years, I had a fainting episode. And then I learned how to control fainting more or less. But There wasn't anything clearly wrong with me. It was just kind of part of the story of my family that I was a little bit sickly. But, you know, being from a Middle Eastern culture, sickly also could mean like, oh, she's so thin and she's feminine. So like my mother and my grandmothers and my aunts weren't really worried about it. But I felt there was something off with me. I've always felt like I've had the wrong body because my mental prowess and my mental strength seems really mismatched for my um, my physical um, self. If you had asked me in my youth, like, what, you know, what do I identify with? I would have definitely identified with the idea or the culture of chronic illness. I just wouldn't have known what it was. And it wasn't until my really mid-30s until I realized Lyme disease was the, um, was the culprit. She never really planned to write a memoir about her illness. She mostly just posted about it on social media. But then people started responding to her posts and asking that she compile this writing into a book. I was like, whoa, I have so many marginal identifiers. I don't want another one. I don't want to deal with illness now being this thing that I'm known for. And But after a while, I realized that I would have benefited for the, the book that I ended up writing myself. And so I realized I really had no choice but to write it. So when we got the book deal in, um, must have been spring of 2015, I was in remission. And so I was pretty much thriving. I was on a big like book tour in Australia. And I was like, you know, drinking and eating whatever I wanted and feeling great. And then I had a car accident. I got hit by an 18-wheeler driving home from work. When that happened, I really was just barely into the first draft of this book. Um, And it was a really desperate time. And it was a time that I really had very little cognitive ability. So I barely remember the Facebook posts I was making. Or I know at Twitter, I was there on the middle of the night. 
it was like a very stressful thing because I was online all the time. But what was interesting was the culture had really changed from 2012 to now. Because now it was folded into a dialogue about feminism. It was folded into a dialogue about being a person of color. Suddenly, different issues of identity and my other identifiers were really mixed into the discussion of chronic illness and disability. It was invigorating because I knew I had a cause, but at the same time, it was like sort of, I didn't really choose that life to be a spokesman for this sort of thing. So I was getting really demanding messages and emails from people. And I even had one person who was like, I keep Googling you to get more information about your illness stuff. And I just don't know where to find it. It's here and there, but not, it's not everywhere. When is this book coming out? You know, there's a lot of that. And the thing that I've learned about the illness and disability community is that they're just a lot more demanding than the other communities that I've been an activist in. Um, part of it is because many of them are bedridden and housebound, and so this is their whole life. So you have to balance this feeling of being in the health and wellness culture with like not being in the health and wellness culture, which is really tricky because, for instance, I found myself... When I first was diagnosed with Lyme, I would put the hashtag on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. It would always be like Lyme disease or late stage Lyme or Lyme warrior or whatever it was. That was a way that I could communicate with other people with Lyme. So that was a direct way of letting them know where to find me. Now when I do Lyme posts, it's pretty rare that I put on the hashtag because I don't necessarily need to attract all those followers. I think that immediate connection sometimes comes with weird demands. And there's all sorts of ways that women compare themselves to other women all the time. But there's something really weird that happens with people who are ill where it can be mixed with a lot of anger and depression and why is why is this working for you? Why is it not working for me? I mean, no one's Lyme disease looks the same. I don't love that sort of burden, though I'm very grateful for the connections that come out of it, that the friends I've had, I have several friends that I've only met through the Lyme journey. So, And they're also, in a way, we're all like the rebels of that world because we're not particularly good at like following all our doctor's directions to a T. But I have friends with cancer who are like that too, you know, the sort of rebels of that world. I mean, my friend Salika Jawad, who's... I became friends with through the Lyme journey, actually, because I was reading her health and wellness column in the New York Times, Life Interrupted, where she was dealing with leukemia. She, she has even more followers. And, you know, she'll, like, post something about cancer. And a lot of people have questions, and they want answers, and they want to know how does she survive. Because they see all of us as the ones who've succeeded and survived, and we've lived to tell the tales. And they want to know, well, how did you do it? And then if they see us not following the rules or, you know, doing something differently. They're like, well, why, why did you get that and we can't? Or like, what is that about? And, and then there's the whole privilege discussion, which is hard to um, apply to the body because it is luck to some degree. But I don't know, like, how you account for that. Yeah. 
so before we wrap up, I want to ask a really special favor from all of you listening um, for an upcoming episode that we're planning around the one-year anniversary of the 2016 election. We want to hear about how the last year has affected you in terms of your vote. Are you proud of the way you voted or do you regret the way you you voted? Um, Do you regret not having talked to family members or to friends um, before or after the election? Do you, you know, have you thought about the conversations that you've had around the election and do you wish that you had done something differently? Um, we want to hear your stories. Please email us divided at voxmedia.com. Divided States of Women is executive produced by David Goodman, Keitha Herzog, Nishak Kurwa, and me, Liz Plank.